Okay, podcast, Mr. Billy Griggs. Mr. Bill, how you doing? Good, man. Thanks for having me. No problem. Now, I'm excited about, um, about this one. You was definitely somebody I looked up to as a kid, you know, through the magazines and coming out to California in the early 90s and uh, seeing you at Orange with, you know, obviously all the other legends of, uh, of the early 90s that uh, used to ride there. So, um, yeah, I guess first things up, are you, uh, you, re- you know, we're going into Grands as we're recording this. Are you uh, racing Grands this weekend? Um, no, unfortunately, um, I got I got bit by my cat a few weeks ago, and uh, you know that put me in the hospital for a couple of days, getting an intravenous antibiotic, and um, you know, the infection is cleared out um, for the most part. But I still got a little bit of damage on uh, on the big tendon on top of your foot there, where you know, there's not a lot of there's not a lot of meat above that, so it wasn't it wasn't too hard for him to nick that tendon. So I've got a little bit of recovery beyond the infection on uh, on this tendon as well so um i probably got another good couple of weeks but then i should be right oh that sucks that was you up for uh, nag number one as well um <clears throat> well i had uh five wins and and two seconds so i was definitely short of of a full hand of, of wins there but uh compared to the the number of guys that do we had a lot of birthdays this year and a lot of fast guys came in, so <clears throat> I think I was sitting like sitting like eighth in points or something. So mathematically, I think I was there, but um, you know, you, I, I would have needed a lot of different things happening. So um, you know, a lot of bad luck on other people's part, and, and a perfect race for me. So you know, oh, bummer. Still bummer you come. Yeah, Go yeah, on. it's all right. Yeah, it's all right. You know what? I'm, 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 you know, I'm happy to be racing. And, and to be perfectly honest with you, I, re- I really don't care what numbers on my plate. You know, I'm, I'm pretty far beyond. I mean, you know, you always race with the idea that you want to win the championship, but ultimately, if if you're not really right there to win that that nag title, um, I don't care if it's two or ten or twenty. You know, aside from winning the, the title, so you know, yeah, it's not the end of the world. I get you, I get you. I guess before we go down and, you know, take a trip down uh, memory lane, um, tell us a little bit about, um, you know, who you're riding for now, where you're working. Um, I see that, uh, yeah, the buddies over at Chase, of uh, you guys are actually sponsoring uh, them guys now. So just tell everybody a little bit about uh, all that stuff. Yeah, well, you know, it turned out to be a really neat deal when um, when I started, when I decided to start racing again, you know, I really initially only wanted to race the one race at Chula in 2013 when I got inducted into the Hall of Fame. I just felt like showing up and racing kind of would legitimize going into the Hall of Fame a little bit. And so I would kind of always joked because, you know, it kind of a lot of people thought it was taking me a long time to get inducted. And um, I had initially been making kind of this this tongue in cheek sort of joke that hey, if I ever get in the Hall of Fame, I'll race the race. And, you know, I had hoped maybe I'd get in early enough that I could have maybe raced Vet Pro or, you know, maybe not have had open-heart surgery and and become a really old man. I mean, it basically came (laughs) – I felt like an old man anyway at the time. It it had got to the point where 13 years, you know, after retiring, you know, I get the call to go in and I, you know, was like, man, you know, I always said I was going to race this race, so – you know, I, I sacked up and did it. And then, um, I remember, yeah. Yeah. So got smoked by you 
actually, which was great. <laughs> buddy, buddy, Holmes on the uh, flat pedals, killing, killing everyone. But that was in thirteen. Was, that was seemed just a couple years ago, you know. Yeah, I know. It does. It, it really hasn't seemed like it's been that long. Um, but then when you add it up, it's it is crazy how long ago that was. But so anyway, that was just going to be a one and done deal. And then um, you know, afterwards, I, I I realized how much fun it was and how much I really enjoyed it. And then, you know, aside from that, the challenge of being able to get myself back, you know, to like what I felt like would be, I, I don't know, I guess what I would expect of myself. Cause racing that weekend, I, I mean, I, I didn't feel good. I was winded. Well, was your I, first one. Yeah. though. Yeah. 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 I mean, I just, it was a really big realization as to what, as to what was in store. And so that, that, aspect kind of drove me even more but but what really surprised me was that when I'd gotten back to to work we um at Razor we we had sponsored a table down there and and I had coworkers come down there and stuff and it was really cool that they did that and in a kind of a conversation with one of my one of my coworkers after that event there was like this this conversation going on around the company amongst a few people about the fact that, you know, it was cool. I went in the hall of fame, but that I actually raced because it's not like I walked around telling everyone, Oh yeah, I'm going to race too. You know, cause to be perfectly honest with you, I, I might've got down there and taken some laps and decided, you know what? I don't think I'm going to race this, you know? Um, cause I know Chula is a, a, you know, a challenging track. And, you know, um, one of the funny things about that was Shannon, Shannon Gillette saw me on Saturday and he told me, he said, look, this is really cool that you're racing. Just try to keep it together today though. So we don't have to like wheel you up onto the stage tonight. <laughs> Cause you know, it was like, man, yeah. you know, you're here to get that deal. Don't, don't break yourself off today doing this. But right. um, so, so, you know, back to, back to razor, you know, like in the following weeks after that event, um, there was some conversation going on about that I'd raced and it was like, well, do you think you're going to do this, maybe race more? And I'm like, ah, you know, who knows? I, I, I did have a lot of fun and, and I'd like to maybe do some more races, maybe this event next year again or something. And, you know, it just sort of, I was still kind of in that glow of going in the hall of fame and racing the race. And, you know, just that whole, I didn't, I probably wasn't ready to make a real decision at that point as far as what I wanted to do. But then, what was really cool for me was how some opportunities to support some inquiries of, do you think you're going to race some more? Do you have interest in racing more? And, you know, the whole, but can you edit that out? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're all good. I, yeah. I just started to get a phone call. That's all good. Um, anyway. Um, so, this this interest in in razor um of me actually racing is what kind of spawned the ability for me to go around and and tell some of the people that had been inquiring like you know pete pete Deluski had told me if you are going to race again you know whatever you need we got you covered and to me that was really cool i mean i know pete for a really long time but he, he lived with you didn't pete live with you back in the uh, early 90s yeah Absolutely. When he first moved here, when he first moved here, um, 
to take that job at GT. He or no, this was actually before he got the job at GT, but he moved out here. He did. He, he, yeah, right. He lived at my house for a while, and uh, I think he was trying to get the job at GT or something. But he wasn't working there straight away when he moved in with me. Um, so he was. Uh, yeah, he was here for, I don't know, I guess a few months before he finally did get the job at GT and left on tour for the summer. And then when he came back, he didn't he didn't come back. I, I might have filled his filled his room at that point. I don't know. I used to this. My house was a revolving door of BMX people back then. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, my, my history with Pete goes back pretty far. I mean, this was in the early 90s, like early 92 or something. But another thing to you know, not to go too far off topic, but Pete really was the one that facilitated me getting the job at GT when I was kind of like floundering around, figuring out what I wanted to do. I knew I was done racing in 95, but uh, I, I wanted to be done anyway. And he kind of was the one through a casual conversation with him. I think I like half joking said, I should just go work at GT like everybody else, <laughs> you know, every other SoCal pro that retires, you know, <laughs> right. air, you know, gas is there. I mean, it's like, it's a house full of, you know, has been washed up. Anyway. Um, but you know, back to, back to the razor deal, you know, with, with Pete saying, you know, yeah, anything you need. And, you know, I, I appreciated that, but I wasn't going to walk in and just have him give me all kinds of new stuff. Not really sure what what I was actually going to do. Um, and then when Razor said, you know, if you're going to race more, we'd like to support you. Um, that ended up being like the deal, you know, like that was the thing that said, you know what, this is this is that like last little piece of the puzzle that I kind of needed, I think, to really look at it as not just something I'd like to do or that would be novel or whatever, but like, like I could really do this. I could do this in the, at the level and in the way that I would want to do it to make this full commitment to, to doing it. You know, like if I had just raced that race again or whatever, I would have shown up at, at Chula a year later for my next race and I'd have been in the same shape I was maybe a little bit better, you know, but I wouldn't have like, I don't think I would have really like taken it with the same level of respect and seriousness. Um, so, you know, here we are, you know, four seasons down the road doing this. And um, we finally got to a point where I think that, you know, at first Razor sponsoring me was sort of this just, I would almost say that it was just a, you know, them kind of throwing a bone to a longtime employee, you know, who, you know, it's just kind of the company Razor is. They're very, very good to their employees. And um, I think for me, I, you know, I'd been there, you know, over 10 years at that point. And it was just kind of this like, yeah, this is a really neat opportunity. I mean, obviously, EMX is a great place to be promoting your brand. I mean, it's, you know, sport full of kids and, and, you know, and their parents. And, um, so yeah, there's, there's a huge benefit there. And, but I don't think that was really the motivation up front, but as we got down the road, it started to really manifest a little bit more as like, Hey, BMX is, you know, there's enough people that we've seen through the social media and stuff that have like, you know, referenced, 
Razor's support of BMX. You know, we were able to do some of the McGrath bikes, um, the, the SX500 back in 2015 as part of the USA BMX prize package for their number one riders. And, um, you know, we've done a few little things here and there that have really kind of paid off, you know? I mean, it's like, you know, there's, there's a huge market out there that I think only viewed Razor as just scooters. And even though kids at the BMX track are all into scooters, there are also kids that have that like little something extra, you know, they're not just like a typical kid you would see on a scooter. They're kids that would like be bar spinning a scooter or jumping a scooter or whatever. So when you look at the rest of our product line, like the crazy cart, the, you know, the electric dirt bikes, ripsticks, we've got, items that are a little bit more of the like go for it type of item. And uh, so for, for us to have BMX kids aware of our full product line was a really big deal for us. Um, So, you know, I think we got to a point where looking to expand what we could do um, beyond just, you know, my program, I think, that because of the because of the loyalty and the history that I've had with Chase over the past four seasons, that of all the various different things we talked about possibly doing to expand, um, this one was, you know, kind of I would say the obvious go-to for the fact that not only are you getting some really great pros in Joris and Connor, up-and-coming rider Romaine. Um, you know, there's that, there's that gratitude for what they've done for us in in the past, you know, in the past four seasons too. So it just, it just was a perfect fit to expand that. So. Well, um, you, you guys are, I mean, you and Christoph, Christoph was always, you know, anybody that knows Billy Griggs just knows he was always factory. You always had the best stuff and well, obviously getting to the GT stuff and product development and everything you've done you know, after you, after you race or you, after you kind of retired and, and moved into a job. Um, but like Christoph was kind of like you as well, always about, you know, the bike, just, just up to date bikes and the look and, um, all that stuff. So you guys probably get on good when you kind of nerding out and all the stuff, right? Yeah, no, we absolutely do. And, and, you know, that the new, uh, carbon frame has been in development for quite a while. And, um, you know, I, I, there's been multiple times where, where I've, you know, sat down with Christoph and looked at all the various different things, you know, that were, that were early ideas. And, and, you know, we talked about, you know, a lot of different things. I remember talking with him about the arrow seat post and whether or not we should do that. And, you know, the pluses and minuses of that. And, um, you know, it's, it is kind of cool. I was building bikes for the GT riders well after the end of, um, the actual GT when it was the Pacific years. Yeah, you did Mike, and, Mike Day and Jill's bike, right? Yeah, right. I did there. Yeah, exactly. And then um, I'd also before that uh, with, you know, with Pete and Kristoff, Pete was handling the GT stuff again, um, had built frames for Kristoff. So I remember Pete and Kristoff, you know, they came over to my garage and we, you know, like sussed out all the new bikes that I was going to build for Kristoff. So it's kind of cool that in like 2005, five-ish, I guess it was, four maybe, that, you know, I wind up, I'm building these custom GTs for Kristoff. And then here, you know, 
fast forward to now and and we're kind of having those same conversations about about new products and and bikes and only now i'm I'm riding his bikes. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, Billy, you're so, for the new school people listening, I mean, you're just ahead of the game in all the product development and everything. Did you invent the box series? I know you was heavily involved because that was I had one when they first came out, and was, was you part of that whole design? Yeah. So, um, so as I started at GT, you know, I didn't just walk in on my first day and and wind up in the same position that I was in when I like left, you know, or when the company closed up, um, I had gone through a good year and a half of doing like quality control and, and just kind of learning all these ins and outs of the business. And I think the long-term goal for me was always going to be to get me into the R and D department and start doing what I eventually was doing. But you know, I had a lot to learn. I was just this kind of like naive, you know, guy that, that had been racing, you know, his whole life and never had a job and, you know, a nine to five job anyway. And, um, I think that there was this path that I was on from the get go when I started GT, but when I was just barely getting into the R and D department, the, um, the, the idea for the box frame, the first generation one, was already happening. And um, I did ride some very early prototypes of it and, uh, you know, still had my starting gate and had been like coming home and doing starts on it and stuff. And, you know, it was what was crazy about that design was that it, that was more or less the people that designed that didn't know, had never done a gate start, like a real gate start in their life. And, Aluminum was still a pretty new material, so there was still this like idea that you know aluminum frames need to be built really, really, you know, heavy duty and stiff because you know we're afraid that it's going to break or whatever. I mean, there was just a lot of a lot of learning at this at this point, and the box series was honestly done more to more for a visual identity, um, and so. As that frame evolved and as I got more involved in the R&D department and the development of those frames, I started building building frames on my own. At every turn I had, I was making those custom team frames less stiff <laughs> um, with a little more feel back into them. And, you know, eventually we wind up with the Ultrabox and the Ultrabox was the first project that I worked on. There's a lot of people that give me sole credit for that. And it's just, you know, there's, there really is no sole credit for any project at, at GT. We were all very adamant about, you know, utilizing all the various resources. So there was input from industrial design. There was input from the, you know, the schooled engineers. There was all this input like there always was for every project, but that was kind of the project that, that I drove to be what I, my vision and, and feel as a, as a rider needed to be. And that was that box day had to get a lot smaller, you know, maintain some of the look and the identity that had been developed, but let's make it a lot smaller. So you understood what, when we, cause you was making all our bikes. And I remember you understood right. when we was trying to explain stuff and that, like you got obviously cause you raced at the same level as we did. So you kind of got it. So it must have been huge uh, asset to them guys, right? 
Yeah, and, and you know that was the that was the beginning. I think of of me working there. One of the things that was said was, "Look, you know, we've put we've tried to put the BMXer in the engineer for a long time, and and it never seems to work. So let's let's take the BMXer and put the engineer in him. And mm-hmm. over the course of the seven you know seven years that that I worked there, that's what happened. You know, and um, by the time we got to the Ultra Box, that was in full swing, and it was really that was that was a successful. Uh, moment for me like that was the highlight for me was like sealing the deal on that ultra box and watching it go into production and feeling for the first time since I'd been there that we were doing everything as good as we could be doing it from an elite level of rider input so and the uh the the the, the <laughs> Mr. J's I've got pictures of that day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know it's that's um there's a, there's a few people out there that that were at that uh at that press release uh press party that um So tell still her, tell, tell everybody it. that doesn't understand, you know the, the yeah. new school the yeah, people that so, so you know one of the other things that 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 GT was kind of you know, I guess they were kind of a little bit of an uptight company. Um, and, you know, I had come in and I was I was doing some marketing stuff as well. Like I was in charge of, you know, I was in charge of doing all the media relations for the BMX side of things. Um, our buddy Steve Blick was handling the mountain bike stuff and he helped me a lot with learning how to, you know, deal with the publications and do cool stuff that got them excited and made them want to write great stories. And, and so, you know, up the street from GT, our, our last big building over there on Dyer road was this uh, gentleman's club called <laughs> Mr. J's. And uh, they, you know, we used to, we used to go over there. I mean, like you could literally, I mean, it was like two or three miles from the office. It was right there. And lunch at Mr. J's. <laughs> Yeah, we go to lunch at Mr. J's all the time. And so we got to like where we, you know, I mean, they had a decent burger special too. You know, I mean, it wasn't just about going to Mr. J's for the gentleman's aspect of it. But, uh, you know, we, so when we were talking about the Ultra Box and debuting this frame to the press, uh, you know, I was half kidding when I said it, but I'm like, we should throw a we should throw this party at mr j's um like you know it floated around i knew like i was like i was like oh man you know it's probably you know nobody's ever going to sign off on this thing here you know like nowhere they're going to let us do this and sure enough though like it wound up happening and i didn't even have to lobby that hard for it so you know, I think, you know, like me and TC, you know, the usual patrons of Mr. J's when <laughs> I think we, we went over there and, and we, we got cash. They gave us money. All the varieties yeah. that went, the pros that, that went, they're like, no, here's, your right. water, here's your water cash as well to spend. <laughs> yeah, for sure. No, I, so, so yeah, we set this thing up and, and the day of, the day of, I, I took a, I took a check that I'd got from, I guess, I don't know if I got it from petty cash or from marketing or wherever, but I, I took a check. I forget how much it was for, but it was a, a pretty big check. And I walked into the the nearest branch of, uh, I don't even remember what, what bank it was, but I, wa- I, I go into the nearest branch. I'm like, Once. I need this check. I, I need to check this. 
cashed his check with $1 bills. And I think I handed everybody a, a, a roll of $51 yeah. bills that came. So, yeah, that was that was quite the afternoon, you know. And, and the best part was, you know, we, we had the frame covered up with red velvet. Mm-hmm. We this big red velvet blanket and sitting up on a table. And, you know, we'd gotten a few of our um, – a couple of our favorite girls to stand next to it. And, yeah, I got pictures. <laughs> yeah, okay, and unveil yeah. a thing. I, I'd love to see those pictures sometimes. Yeah, no, know. I'll look them up. Uh, yeah, they're in that my would albums. be awesome. Yeah. Um, um, you know, uh, James Ayers. James Ayers. You know, he was. You know, mm-hmm. was Snap or uh, Snap. was it Snap? Yeah, yeah, right. He's uh, he still occasionally will talk about that. Uh, multiple people will that were there still reference that. I think, and you know, I think it was just such a such a cool thing because, you know, again, GT having this really uptight sort of stuffy, the firm, you know, kind of, mm-hmm. you know, there was this they're super corporate and whatever. And um, that was just this one moment kind of in time where I think enough of the right people were working there mm-hmm. that we were able to say, look, this is like this is fun. This is supposed to be a fun deal. You know, I mean, from from everything we did at that time, from having the, you know, the the test track out back. And, you know, as soon as we looked at that building, I remember walking around in, in the very early, like probably first handful of people that went over to that building. And when we went around the back there, I saw that lot from the moment I saw that lot, I was like beating the drum. We need to build a test track. We need to build a test track. We need to build a test track because so many times you, you know, would want to take a new, a new idea, you know, or, or new bike somewhere to ride it and, and really ride it. Cause that was a big aspect of our development was, man, we're going to, we're going to ride this stuff and we're going to ride it at the level that we expect it to perform at. We're not just going to guess and then trickle it into a few riders here and there. We're like, we're from, from the start line, we're going to do this with the, with the development of these bikes and, you know, the cockpit, you know, the power light cockpit, the ultra box. I mean, those are two great examples of that. And, um, the problem was that you couldn't go to sheep hills with it. You couldn't go to orange with it because people would see it and people would be talking about it. And, you know, heck now I can't even imagine if, you know, like with social media and stuff like that, even that wasn't really a problem back then. So, you know, it was still though, we don't want anyone seeing this stuff. So, that was really the catalyst for building that test track, you know. And it was tough. That track was tough. It was not not, yeah. not easy to uh, to even to do a lap. And uh, right. I'll try. Right. You know, I do have the the old crank uh, um, VHS tapes. I've got most of them, and I know I have scanned through a lot of them. There is I have got a lot of footage from there. So if I can uh, find some, I'll put them. I'll put some stuff, you know, in this week with this interview because I, I know oh, there's a bunch great. of stuff with you and even McGrath riding there as well. There's, yep. there's stuff of him there yep. as well, you know. So. Um, yeah, we had a we had a really good time with him. In fact, I would say that probably the you know watching Jeremy ride back there was probably some of the most impressive. He was good, yeah. I've seen. Yeah, I was shocked at how good he still was on a BMX bike at that point. But yeah, I mean, I I I think when I built that track and designed that that setup, that um, I took a lot of heat initially because I think that. You know, I had built it at a level where a lot of people that were former riders that worked at GT were 
it had been too long since they had rode and they weren't just going to come back there. And, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of the, like some of the mountain bike stuff, you know, some mountain bike guys were like, man, we can't do anything back here, you know, like, mm-hmm. uh, so, I mean, I, at one point, I mean, I, I, you know, I was riding mountain bikes back there too, because I just sort of became the, the crash test dummy for not just BMX bikes for, but for mountain bikes as well. Whether you've come um, down that hill, like a start hill, which was steep at the time, and I think it was a triple, yeah. right? Big triple that was tough. Yep. And then I yeah, think so, one of the first rhythm sections, maybe. I, I don't know there was many rhythm sections back then either, even in regular racing, you know? Yeah, no, there wasn't. That that last straight w- rhythm section was, you know, was it was on par with anything you would see today. Um, you know, the thing that, you know, I had had those backyard BMX tracks, both at my parents' house where I grew up, and which was the one that was really probably the best and most publicized. And then mm-hmm. when I um, when I moved out of my parents' house, I moved around around the corner. And uh, really, the main reason that I chose to buy the house that I bought was because it's sitting on a corner and had a big you know backyard. And I was like, you know, fortunately, all the houses in this in the tract I grew up in here have have pretty good sized yards. But this one being a corner had access to like, you know, this with a big double gate on the side. And I'm like, man, I can get a tracker back there, all this stuff. And, um, I, you know, I had basically been building backyard pump tracks since, you know, like 86 or 87. I mean, it's all in BMX action. And I, I still remember there's a picture of you guys. It's like lit up at night. Maybe Alan Foster. Yeah, I think. Yeah, it could be. Yeah. 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 You guys got a lot um, of coverage though. But so, so having, always you know enjoyed building tracks like i wanted to build that one at gt so bad um because i i saw the potential for what it could be it was like the opportunity and and of course being the guy that was going to ride it the most i in in my mind you know that was the part of the job that you know i was really looking forward to integrating if we could get that that track built but because that track was so challenging at the time um, it <clears throat> it wound up being good because it left it really pretty private. Like I could go back there and ride, and you know it's it's really tough to have GT being right there in the middle of Orange County, and now GT is going to have this big huge track out back. I mean, you think about you know Oakley and their pump track that they have. It's it's kind of that similar mm-hmm. situation um, where it's like, how do you keep people out of here? And so I thought, well, you know, the best way to keep people out of here is to make this track really hard and really dangerous. And only the best guys are going to want to ride here. And, you know, I figured all we need it for is our team and we've got all the best guys. So, (laughs) Well, what was funny, you know, you rode the track, you know, really good, but the the GT amateurs were better than the pros on that track, you know, like Loraldi and Shanahan and, um, Hanez, I mean, I seem to remember them guys could ride the track better than us. <laughs> At least, yeah, you know, <laughs> I, I think that, you know, I, I, I think that Mario Thunder and, yeah, yeah, and I think Thunder and Charles were the two that, like, <laughs> like yeah, no thanks. I, I don't really want to do anything here. Like, I'm not interested in, in breaking myself off and, and missing the big race deal. And, right. you know, I think that's kind of, like I, I and I and I respected that mentality. I mean, I I didn't build that track for you know for Charles or or Danny to come and ride it every you know like every day because I knew they weren't going to. I mean, it, it you know that track was not about getting hole shots and and you know sprint training and all that stuff. It was about let's see how bikes handle and you know like 
let's break a few bikes. I mean, Richie Poole br- busted busted a, one of the recall frames. That was one of the early ones that that went, you know, and he busted one back there. And you know, it, it was a it was a track for riders, not for meatheads. Who was that you know? guy? I think he was your buddy that worked there. Punk Punk Rock Tom. Yeah, punk Rock Tom. He used to yeah, crash. Punk- he wasn't a bike rider, but he would just get on stuff and eat it, wouldn't he? Yeah, because he's a skater. He was the you know crazy. He worked in the composites department there, and um, he he had a relationship with with the guy that was in charge of that department, which is how he wound up getting the job. I mean, it was pretty rare that that a non bike guy wound up working at GT, um, but you know he was this go for it skateboard type guy that he just was just missing a little something in the self-preservation, you know, aspect. And he would go for just about anything. And, you know, he, he really hadn't been riding for very long. I, you know, had taken him to like sheep hills a couple times and he really had no idea what he was doing. He was really oh, like, yeah. if you, if you know, if you go back to like the, the motocross days with uh, Seth Enslow, you know, in mm-hmm. those crusty demon of dirt things, he was essentially the Seth Enslow of, of BMX at the time. Right. <laughs> Had no clue what he was doing, but he didn't care. He was going to go for it. So, There's yeah. a whole section, I remember, on Crank of him just crashed. There's a whole crash, crash yeah. section at the GT track and just eating it so bad. And then he gets up and does it again. And uh, Yeah. So, yeah, Dead Sailor. And that, when we did that, dead, the Dead okay, Sailor that's video, it. he yeah. got a really good section in that. But right. um, ironic thing was, you know, uh, Later on down the road, when I landed at Razor, we needed, um, we got to a point where, like, when I started at Razor, we had essentially, I was creating the the position and the department that, that I do now um, as far as, like, prototyping and building things and um, actually having con- idea, you know, concepts built and tested in-house. Um, and we were so far behind on being able to do all that stuff as it really took off. The ideas were flowing in so hard that, you know, and so, so many that we had to hire another guy to come in and and help. And so having that previous relationship with, with Tom, I think he was, you know, he was at GT until the very last day as well. Um, And then I think he wound up like just swinging a hammer for the, for a couple of years. And so, I hit him up and he came and he worked at Razor um, with me for about another year or so. And the actual concept and idea and very first prototype for our crazy cart really came from we were working on this bumper car project. And when we were doing it, Tom's like, I want to put casters on the back of this thing. It was just like a regular bumper car, like which you would which you would you know, drive it, the carnival or whatever. And we were just doing this like little small one for kids, you know, it's going to be plastic. I mean, whatever. But we had this prototype and he's like, let's put casters on the back of it. And we wound up doing it. And it's like, that thing was so crazy at the time. I mean, it was insane. And, and, you know, although it went through quite a few um, versions of development by the time it, it became a real project in 2013, uh, the original idea for the crazy cart, which has been a wildly successful item for, for razor actually, you know, came from, came from punk rock Tom. Uh, so, so yeah, pretty wild. Yeah. 
Well, let's. Uh, I, I guess let's finish while we're in the middle of. You know, I guess we're going kind of backwards. We're in the we're in the mid nineties now. You know, mid school. Yeah, um, sure. yeah. Use it G two till the end. So it tells that I'd already gone. You know, uh, for the last yeah. couple of years. Um, right. How was it for you then, going from that? You know, I think. Uh, you know, I've said it numerous times. At the time, I thought every team was like GT, and you don't realize till you're not there. Then it's not. You know, so. Um, how was it for you, you know, coming to the end as it came to an end and then moving on and, you know, it was just magical times. Um, so for you, it must have been tough as well, right? Well, really tough being there till the end. Yeah, no, it really was because for one, I, you know, I had become really, really loyal to that brand and it was so, for me, it was very poetic that I had a post racing career there for the fact that when I started racing, um, the very first bike that I got to start racing on was a GT and my early days at orange, you know, I mean, Gary was out there. Richard was out there. I mean, GT was like the brand and there were really not opportunities for me to, to ride for GT. That was one of um, my questions. Yeah. I mean, you rode for all the big teams and that, but yeah, never GT. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was kind of weird how, you know, it seemed like, it seemed like i probably because of the relationship I had with Gary and being, you know, a local boy that, that rode their stuff when I started out, like both, both of the bike shop team, do the two big bike shop teams that I rode for in SoCal were GT co-sponsored teams. So, um, I'd been on a GT all the way up until, you know, I basically until I got on CW and, um, so, you know, throughout my racing career, there were, a, you know, opportunities that maybe popped up here or there to like maybe talk about it and it just never really seemed to work out the timing was just never there but so to wind up working there and then of course you know racing a little bit of part-time stuff and and riding on the team with you guys was was really cool but you know it was like it was part of a bigger picture it wasn't about riding for the you team still, you still did good you made mains you got a couple podiums i remember it's, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. A couple of couple of good runs. Um, definitely, yeah. there was a big advantage I had at that point, and that was that you know it really didn't matter how I did. I was just out there for the experience of being out there and, and keeping myself sort of relevant as far as development went on the bikes. It was all about developing the bikes and and keeping some relevance there. And but an advantage that I had was that, you know, I got to ride that, I got to ride all the time. So, you know, even though I wasn't racing all the time, I was still riding a lot. And, um, to be able to race double a without like worrying about making the mortgage or, you know, how you do and getting the title and all that stuff gave me a big advantage to just go out there and mix it up. You know, I could just go out there and ride. And it was like, kind of like, almost like what racing is now, like the results, you know, results, are, they, they matter, but at the end of the day, you still are going to go back to your job and go back to your life after you're done racing, you know, for the weekend and it's, your life's going to continue on. And that's kind of how those little brief few years of double A were for me at that time. You know, it was really, it was really a cool deal to be doing that. Mm -hmm. but, and then yeah. coming to the end of GT then. So what, uh, did you go yeah. straight to Razor as well from there? So I didn't, um, I, you know, inner inner bike in 2001 was kind of the opportunity for most of the GT guys to to go there and start. You know, like you go there looking for new sponsors when you're a racer. You know, you also go there looking for new opportunities when you're uh, an industry guy. 
And, um, you know, I talked to a few different companies at Interbike and, um, I had, you know, met the guys at Intense uh, a few, few different times. And I always thought that Intense was a very cool brand and what they were doing, you know, how small the company it was, yet how big their image was, was, was really cool. And I wound up, I wound up talking to them guys at Interbike and went and hooked up with them a few weeks later and, Wound up taking a job down there. Um, I remember because they did a big article in Dirt on you there, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. So the the idea the idea was that we were going to develop a line of BMX bikes. Well, like frames, really, because Intense is just a frame was just a frame company at the at that time. They didn't do any complete bikes, which I thought was a perfect fit because this was an opportunity to build you know some really good high end stuff, and because that's what this company is all about, and. Um, you know, as it turned out, I mean, I did a lot of fun mountain bike projects there too, but as the BMX thing got rolling and we had some bikes and, you know, I worked really hard and put a lot into developing a couple of frames and, um, it just kind of turned out to be one of those situations where the company wasn't large enough to be able to take on the manufacturing of of those frames and you know I don't think that they were interested in sponsoring at any serious level a pro I mean we tried to do something with the jackal for a little while there and um, you know then we did something with with the answer answer guys with Derek Betcher you know for a little bit and you know it just intense the mountain bike guys just were they just didn't understand BMX and what it was going to take to to really do it right and so we kind of just we we kind of stuck the toe they they stuck the toes in the water and realized that you know they they weren't going to swim in that pool and that was when they <clears throat> ended up doing that licensing agreement with I forget I don't know what company it was but you know Toby Henderson had the big trailer that was like the exclusive you know vendor. Yeah, yeah, was that was that what that trailer was? I thought he had some like some Vigor, fancy vigors, maybe. Yeah, well, so this is even before then. I mean, there was a while there where he was like his uh, his trailer, like they they said Balls all Corona or something. That's one of the sponsors, I think. Danny C and yeah, Herman, David Herman. Yeah, so, uh, so so that stuff. Yeah, that stuff ended up happening slightly later in the game, but so. What wound up happening was Toby's company at the time came in and they they licensed the Intense Tire brand and also the Intense BMX brand. And so um, for me, that was kind of not the direction that I mean, that's not why I was driving, you know, 60 miles each way to Temecula from Orange County to, you know, was to have this just become, you know, a crappy Taiwan brand. And so, you know, I. At that point, at that point, I had been solicited already by Razor about coming to work there, and uh, I, I probably wasn't really super excited about doing that initially. But then, as things, the wheel started to sort of fall off the wagon at Intense as far as them doing the actual BMX program that we had talked about. I mean, we're two years down the line, and it's like not happening and you know now they're gonna that was sort of the the move for me which at the time I didn't know if it was good bad or or, or what but you know to, 
to have Marvin Jeff say, look, we're not going to do the BMX program here. We love that you're here. And I, like I said, I've been doing a lot of other stuff and, you know, I wasn't out of a job by any stretch, but I was like, you know, this is, this is kind of all those parts aligning for me to just take this job at Razor. You know, I'm just going to do it. And, you know, turned out to be the best thing I ever did. So, you know, I, I really, I guess ultimately I owe Toby Henderson a big, you know, debt of gratitude for coming in and, and licensing those brands and kind of like, you know, taking the opportunity for intense to, well, he didn't take the opportunity. They decided they didn't want to do it. So, but, you know, in trade for, in trade for developing, you know, intense as a brand that anyone in BMX even cared about, um, you know, I got a job at Razor. <laughs> so mm -hmm. let's go a little bit uh, back to the start, Billy. I mean, you came, you know, one of the original, Orange Y, SoCal Dudes, Factory Superstar, you know, my first uh, Billy Griggs sighting, at least on, on video, on TV, was the uh, Jag World Championships, um, again, I spoke about this race numerous times, and you can see it on YouTube, um, we first watched that, it was on TV in England, the Tropicana Hotel, and you're battling with uh, Robert Eisenberg, he, that guy yep. actually doubles, but uh, you came from the back, I think it is, in 20-inch, and pedaled in the air over these little doubles going <laughs> to the last turn. You try to hit him and go on the inside and you crash. But just you yeah. jumping those doubles and pedaling in the air on the takeoff and on the landing and, you know, you and Richie Anderson, for, for us, the English, we would then pass, that VHS tape would get passed around throughout our friends in, in, in racing in the early 80s in, in the UK. But it was always spoke about how, you know, we'd never really seen anybody pedal in the air, you know. Yeah. So, right. um, e. yeah, e. exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I think it might've even been before ET. So that was 82, yeah. right? So ET was 83. So it's around the same kind yeah. of time. So yeah, there you go. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about those early years and the teams you were yeah. in for Mongoose, CW and, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it, it was back in the glory days of where you could get a factory sponsor by winning like a lot of triple point races locally around, I mean, like a real factory sponsor too like not like what they have now um that that era back then was it was it was flush with companies i mean we had all kinds of brands around and and socal being the hotbed it was just you know every every team was out every team was a was a junior development team back then you know i mean every every opportunity a, a team had you'd get you'd get offers from multiple teams to go ride for them because it was just, again, sponsorship was so flush and the industry was so booming and, you know, you could get a sponsorship and not have to, not have to pay a single thing. And, you know, for me, I, I rode for a couple of really big bike shops, you know, Brian Spurs BS bikes was the first one. And then um, Irvine bike company was, was shortly after that. That was, again, it was a, it was a pretty, good, well-known team. And, um, then I got an opportunity to ride for Bassett, which was like, that was the first factory offered ride. And this was just after the Bassett, really the Bassett family had been doing this. It was this guy, Chuck, that was kind of in charge of it now. And I didn't really realize that. And, you know, like when I went to ride for them, I, it was kind of like, there wasn't a whole lot of like, you know, Honestly, at the time, it was like, man, it's a jersey that says factory on it. And that's like the goal of every kid, you know, mm -hmm. like you want to ride for a factory team and, you know, I'm going to get a, I'm going to get free bikes and, I'm, you know, 
for uniforms and all that stuff. But there wasn't like a really a, a big plan as far as like what nationals were going to go to or what big races or whatever. And I just, you know, it kind of none of that stuff really was in place. And here I am riding for the team, but really not much has changed. And then, you know, like I didn't know like if I was going to a national or what. And then out of the blue, Roger Warsham calls my house and, and I get on the phone with him and he asked me if I'd like to come ride for him. And of course I was well aware of what CW was, you know, at that, at that point, I mean, that was a brand that, you know, he had some really well-known hero guys riding, riding for him. And I was like, well, heck yeah. I didn't even ask what the deal entailed. Cause you just, <laughs> you know, like you, you, you really don't, you're just like, Oh man, CW team, this guy rides for him, that guy rides for him. And, you know, that was good enough, right? If Mike Miranda's riding for this team, then me riding for him, I don't even care. You know, like, I don't care what you're going to do. That's, I always want to ride, ride for a team that Mike Miranda's on. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, you know, I think it was uh, from like spring of 82 that, that I got on the team and I rode for them until after the end of, the 83, uh, right after the 83 grands, um, I got an offer from Schwinn to go ride for them. And, you know, that was really like the first, I had no intention of wanting to go anywhere. I mean, I had my, I had some things I didn't like about riding for CW. Like, I mean, I hated the bars and I didn't really, yeah, but, but Roger always worked with me, you know, like he built me, he eventually built me some custom bars that, you know, that worked a little bit better. And, he built me a frame with a steeper head tube angle. Of course, I, you know, I thought the lightning bolt down tube was kind of the dumbest thing I'd ever seen. But you know, I, you know, I had I had a closet full of lightning bolt T-shirts, so I thought, or, you know, <laughs> so I thought, well, what the heck, you know, like uh, let's go with it. But, um, but you know, there was just some stuff that you know when I rode for CW that I was like, eh, I don't know, and um, but so I was in no big hurry to leave that team, but. When the when the call came in from Mike Polson's dad, Virgil, and he kind of he talked to my dad and then, you know, my dad kind of told me and he kind of laid out like. This was like a real factory ride, like what you eventually know it to be like CW was a great factory ride. I mean, we didn't pay for anything, but there was also a lot of like, you know, 48 hours straight driving trips in the van and, you know, you're sleeping on the bench seats and on the floor of the van under, you know, it's kind of still got that, like, you know, you've got four people in a, in a room and, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. it was super tight budget team. It's not, CW was not a fancy team to be riding for when I rode for them. What, what Schwinn came to the plate with was, you know, you're going to fly to this race. You're going to fly to all these races and, you know, the schedule, it was it included a lot of NBL and ABA and, you know, it was, it was really this like significant op- opportunity. And, um, you know, from the get go, I was like, I can't ride a Schwinn Sting though. <laughs> Cause you know, I mean, it's got a five inch head tube and a 10 inch bottom bracket and it weighs a ton. And it's like, you know, that was like weird for me because I was like Schwinn though, you know, it was like, I mean, he may as well have been telling me, even though, even though Schwinn was a quality brand, I mean, they were quality brand amongst like 10 speeds and beach cruisers. Schwinn was, one of the first BMX bikes, but at that point in 84, you're looking at Schwinn going, eh, I'm not really sure if this brand is, 
you know, it's certainly not GT or JMC or Diamondback or or Hutch. You know, you're not looking at Schwinn and those in the, you're not having Schwinn in that same conversation. But again, like a bunch of money is coming. I mean, I'm, you know, 15 years old and I'm going to be getting a monthly salary in this crazy contingency program. And, you know, at that point, I'm like, you know, college fund, you know, like. Yeah, so rad that it's know, back then as yeah. well, you know. Yeah. How, how do you, you know, like, how do you say no to that? So, you know, so I took the deal and, you know, it turned out to be just the biggest pain in the butt ever, you know, with just how corporate and silly um, all the details of writing for them became. They had promised me when I said I can't write a Schwinn Sting. Well, let's send you one and you just ride it and let us know what you want to do to it. And, you know, we'll build you a bike from there because, you know, we're Schwinn. We, you know, we've got our Paramount factory in Chicago. We can build anything. And, you know, all these promises were made up front about don't worry about the equipment. We just want you on the team. And, you know, we'll work the equipment stuff out. Well, you know, I get a couple of months down the road and I'm like getting smoked. I mean, I thought I thought I hated CW bars and, and <laughs> you know, thought I you know didn't like the choppered out heading along my CW. Well, when I got on that Schwinn Sting, I felt like I was riding, you know, I felt like I'd gone back to the 70s. You know, I mean, a Schwinn Sting, I mean, a lot of people don't probably know this, but a Schwinn Sting was developed around the the classic mongoose frame and like the redline pro line so schwinn didn't actually develop anything their r&d was rip off and duplicate they took two different popular bikes and kind of copied them and basically in 1984 i'm getting on a bike that was designed after you know the the late 70s mongoose you know that classic mongoose frame we all know Mm -hmm. and and like then the five inch head tube of the Redline Pro line is on there because they just decided to sprinkle that in. If Redline's doing it, you know, we should do it. And, you know, but it had this super low bottom bracket. I mean, it felt like I was almost riding a cruiser at the time. It was just the bike was horrible for, for me at 15, you know. So we got to a point where they'd sent me this another stock bike, but it was a, a complete bike. They didn't sell it as a frame. It was it was the first generation Predator frame, and it had a four inch head tube. And you know, it was just like I told them, "Look, I can't ride this thing because of X, Y, and Z." And they went, "Well, this complete bike solves X, Y, and Z." So they send me this Predator frame, and I go to put it together, and I've got flight cranks, and the Predator bike, it was a complete bike only. Again, it was not developed as a frame set. And it had one piece cranks on it. So as I, the first thing I did was flip this bike over and pull the, the one piece cranks out and go to put flight cranks in. And the chain stays were so wide on it because they were designed to just clear a one piece crank. Nobody ever thought about, hey, somebody might want to put flight cranks on this. I put the flight cranks on and there's no way in a million years that this crank is going to, you know, clear the stay. It's like, bam, hits it. So it's like, well, if I'm going to ride this bike, I mean, there was a lot of issues with bikes back then as far as like clearances and tolerances and, and things. And, you know, you'd see somebody here and there with like a flight crank where maybe they ground a little bit of a wedge out of the pedal boss or something to get it to clear. But like, there was no way you were doing this with this predator frame. Like it was, it's hidden and that's it. Like there's no way around this. And, you know, I gotta, I gotta get on, on the horn of these guys and go, 
this frame isn't rideable. Can't ride it. Sorry. Now what? Now what's next? I mean, it was just headache after headache after headache. So, you know, we wind up having a good relationship with with the Shoops who lived right up the street from me when they were doing when they were starting free agent around this time. They uh, were using Boris Dixon to build their bikes, and um, I believe that that Brent's dad, Brad, had made had helped my dad make an introduction with with Boris. So we took the Predator frame and the and the Schwinn you know Sting frame over to Boris Dixon and said. Here's the here's what this bike needs to look like. Can you build this bike? You know, we gave him some angles and geometry and stuff like that. I used like an old JMC Black Shadow as you know some reference points and stuff. And you know, Boris ends up building this bike. It's super light. It's super good. I get on and I go on a tear. I like. I think I beat Doug Davis like four or five weekends straight, which you know had not happened at any point in my career at this at, at this stage. And uh, all was good in the hood. I was happy. I had a bike. I was winning races. Schwinn had cut the check to pay for the frame. So I thought we were all good until I wind up at this race in Ohio. And a bunch of Schwinn execs come over from, you know, from Chicago. And they are looking at this frame. And one of the guys was like, what the hell is this? You know, like, where'd this frame come from? And as far as I know, it's all good that I've got this frame because they paid for it. And the guy's kind of like, he's not really laying into me. I mean, I'm just a kid, but he wound up going to the guy that was in charge of the program and just lit him up. What the heck is this frame and whatever. And he can't be on that thing and whatever. And so they basically called me and said, you got to ride the predator or the sting or not ride on our team anymore. And, I went, see ya. <laughs> easy, you know, yeah. easy, easy decision. Cause I had learned at that point, the valuable lesson, the biggest value in riding for Schwinn wasn't the contingencies. It wasn't the flying to the races. It was learning to trust what my gut and what my, what my feeling was and what my feel for my bike was because I got what I wanted and it worked. And so that gave me the confidence to trust what I was talking about. And, you know, I think go, looking back now, very early on at 15 years old, that learning that lesson and going through that kind of is what, what led me to do things down the road and eventually become a custom frame builder, you know, cause like I, I suffered, you know, a couple of years there early on with, with riding bikes that I wasn't comfortable on and, you know, to be able to work with people and help them understand how you need to be one with your bike. Um, and that not every rider is going to just cause so, so-and-so wins right. Mike Polson won races on that sting all the time. That's fine for Mike Polson. Don't tell me that Mike Polson can win. You know, look how many races Stu Thompson won with a five-inch head tube redline. Right. That's fine. That's Stu Thompson. I, you know, when you look at a bike and you ride your bike, you know, if you don't understand how it needs to work for you personally and your style, you know, everybody rides different. I mean, you know, that that was probably that was probably the single moment 
situation with Schwinn that that pointed me in the direction of of wanting to work at GT eventually and wanting to ride free agent limos when I rode for Redline down the road and and all that stuff. So you know, lots of value, lots mm. of value in riding for them. So then you went to Mongoose, right? Yeah. So you know, it was uh, it was funny when I showed up at the first race on Schwinn. Um, again, I wasn't out looking for a new ride. I mean, I was going to stay riding for CW as, you know, long as whatever, you know, I had, had no reason to want to leave them. Um, I show up at the first race. It was the worlds in Burbank and I'm all decked out in Schwinn stuff. Brett Allen, who was the mongoose team manager came up to me and he said, man, he goes, I wish I'd have known you were looking for a ride. You know, I wish I, I wish I'd have known before you took this Schwinn deal that you were going to leave CW. And I'm like, well, it didn't really work out that way. They just, you know, I, I wasn't looking to leave CW, whatever. And he's like, well, almost sort of prophetically, Brett, having been around the sport for a while and maybe having, you know, I don't, maybe knowing some people that rode for Schwinn and having seen their action in the sport before, he, he, he said to me, he goes, well, if it doesn't work out, if it doesn't work out, let me know. So, you know, I gave him a call pretty much. Like, as soon as I got off the phone with the guy at Schwinn, and, you know, we mutually parted, um, I picked up the phone and called Brett. I was like, well, it didn't work out. <laughs> and, you know, and he basically said, okay, you know, like, tell me everything that your Schwinn deal was and, and we'll, we'll, we'll just match, like we'll do everything that your Schwinn deal was. So I, I think at the time I had to, I, I don't know if we faxed it or if I went and got a photocopy of my Schwinn contract and mailed it to him or what, but you know, I sent him, you know, my, I sent him my Schwinn contract that outlined all the, you know, all the financials and, and everything like that. And he, he duplicated it 100%. Oh, wow. And, uh, and then he also said, let's get that frame from you that Boris built, and we'll copy that exactly. So, um, yeah, it was, it was all good from there. I mean, the, the next two years riding for Mongoose was, was incredible. I mean, that was like, it was a dream ride. I had everything that, not only was it one of the most iconic brands in the sport, but, you know, we had... We had a lot of cool riders. We had the Blue Max thing going on too, which was the like, you know, sub brand of, of BMX products that was kind of a, uh, military, like they sold those bikes at the military bases at the, you know, at the, at the stores there and, um, had kind of been venturing out to make that a more mainstream brand. And so, you know, we Good had team a team as of, well. Darwin, Darwin Griffin, right? Yeah, Darwin, Brian Gass, Mark Lopez. I mean, Ken Amen eventually moved from Mongoose over there. Um, Fred Johnson. Uh, there were some good, fast guys on Blue Max. But one of the things that was really cool about Mongoose for me was that I hadn't been on a team where I had to race against guys in the same class. And um, with Mongoose, I had overlap with Todd Henry. And then, of course, Darwin, who was – had moved over to he had he Darwin originally started out and was going to ride for Mongoose, but then they moved him over to Blue Max. But then, so at one point, I think we we could fill half the main event with Mongoose and Blue Max guys between mm -hmm. between me, Todd Henry, Brian Gass, and Darwin. Um, 
you know, we, we had overlap on, you know, on cruiser and 20 inch. So getting to, to race with those guys and also be staying, of course, the history with being gas goes back way longer than, than it did with the other three guys. But, um, having become, having been in a situation where I now I had to race with teammates was really, that was a good learning experience, you know, cause you're just used to not having to, you know, you, you have some stuff go down on the track yeah. and then you're the same rental car going back to the <laughs> yeah. room. That, you know, that can get a little yeah. bit hairy sometimes. And so, you know, there's, there's, yeah. <laughs> so there's, there's, there's some maturity that, that has to, you know, be developed at that point. So, uh-huh. you know, one, one of my favorite things about that. And then Redline, right? And then you turn pro 89, 88, 89, Redline? 87, yeah. So, so Mongoose, yeah, so again, was like, I mean, it was such a dream. It was such a dream ride. Um, I had no intention of ever leaving. But then Skip had sold uh, BMX products to, I forget what the name of the company was, but, you know, it was one of those scenarios where, you know, the brand is no longer going to be the brand that, the brand was it's going to become a division of you know such and such and i remember that pretty much the team was disband disbanded at the at the time and i think eric roop was was still staying on and they had again i had this contract that was not really negotiated with mongoose up front it was basically taken over from my schwinn ride and the new owners of Mongoose looked at this contract and they went, wait a minute, this guy's not a pro. <laughs> and, you know, it's not like it was all that much money, but I mean, it was still, it was, you know, I mean, you're an amateur, you're not supposed to be getting paid. And they like tripped out. They're like, well, you know, you can stay on the team, but you know, you're, we can't pay you because you're an amateur, you know, we'll still sponsor you. And I was like, well, you know, <laughs> I, I, you know, at this point, I'm 16. I, you know, I mean, I got, you know, I think I, you know, had my first mini truck and, you know, I had my own phone line at my parents' house. I mean, it's like, come on, man, I gotta, ha- I gotta make some money. So essentially it was like, you can get your expenses paid or that's it. And then, you know, again, all those teammates that I'd grown accustomed to having and, and the tours that I'd done on, I mean, it was clearly all that stuff was changing. And so. Yeah, I mean, I kind of just put some feelers out there, and um, Steve Guyberson had recently left BMX Action Magazine to to be the Redline team manager. And Redline's team was in kind of a transitional phase at that point. I think Scott Clark was their pro, and you know, they still had some of the older guys on the team, like John Anderson, and the guys that have been on the team for a long time, uh, you know, Robert Swick, and and I think that they were just you know, Gene Roden was no longer the Redline team manager, right? It's, it's Steve Guyerson, and they they just were looking to kind of revamp their whole image. And uh, so, you know, Steve Guyerson was like, yeah, man, you know, you're, this is good timing. I had known Steve, obviously, through when he worked at BMX Action. We'd done a lot of photo shoots together, and, you know, he was well aware of, you know, my you know, my style of riding and, and everything like that. And he was like, yeah, you're a perfect fit for kind of what we're looking to do in the way of revamping the brand. So, 
that was um, that was really just. I mean, I really didn't know what I was going to do. Not riding for mongoose at that point. I, I really just I didn't know if I was going to keep racing or or what. You know, I mean, you know, getting ready to like be a senior in high school and go start thinking about what what I'm going to do. You know, like mm-hmm. am I going to keep racing? Am I going to turn pro? Whatever. And so, you know, I, I finished out my last years in amateur riding for Redline and. That was a, a ton of fun. They um, ended up hiring Greg Hill back, which was great. Um, he only rode for them for that one season um, uh, because I guess, you know, I, the first year I'm back on the, you know, that I'm on Redline, they're revamping the team and the look and all this stuff. And they've got Greg for a pro and they don't really have a team. They, they wind up with just Greg and me. And, we do that for a year and then lo and behold, Seattle bike supply is, is getting ready to, okay, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm a year, a year behind on that. Greg winds up, Greg winds up leaving because Lynn is in this kind of situation where the company hit some financial hardship. And this is the beginning of what led to Seattle bike supply, um, having Redline. Mm-hmm. At- as the owning Redline as their house brand. So <clears throat> I raced my last like year and a half in amateur for Redline. And I'm kind of like all this stuff starting to happen. I'm like, man, you know, like this just happened to me at Mongoose, you know, like the company's going to be sold and who knows what's going to happen. And, you know, I remember Lynn had told me I wanted I wanted to turn pro and Lynn had told me, well, I don't want you to turn pro because I don't want you to. And these were his exact words. And this is, you know, I don't mean any dis- disrespect by, by saying this, but he said, look, he goes, we had Dee Leone as a top amateur and he got all kinds of coverage. He turned pro and, you know, it didn't go as well for him turning pro. He goes, we're getting a lot of coverage with you as a top, as our top amateur. I don't want to have that same thing happen to you. I don't want you to turn pro. And he basically is telling me, you know, I don't know if you'll make it as a pro or not. You know, Mm -hmm. that's essentially what he's saying. You know, he's like, I don't really have the confidence in you to, to let you turn pro and and throw away all this coverage that we get by having a guy winning in 17X every, you know, all, all the time. So. I ended up staying amateur because I was like, eh, you know, maybe I'm not ready to turn pro anyway. Kind of like I kind of, you know, bit on what he was telling me. And so at the beginning of 87, everybody I was racing against went pro. Went pro. Yeah. Kevin Hall turned pro. Doug Davis turned pro. Charles turned pro. Um, It was like we get a couple of races in and I'm still a racing expert. And I'm like, you know, this is lame. I like, I need to turn pro. And I just remember a conversation with Lynn and I was getting ready to go. This is the end, you know, end of February. I'm getting ready to go to the Arizona race, the winter nationals. And I had raced the Christmas classic, the first couple of races of the year, you know, as expert. And I watched Charles and Kevin and these guys, you know, collect in their a pro money and, you know, Charles, there was this race out here in, in the end of January in San Bernardino and Charles came and stayed at my house and, you know, we're driving home from the race and I think he won a pro both days and probably, you know, got like a podium in, in pro open or something. You know, he was, he was fast straight away and he had like, I remember he had like Clayton used to pay you in cash back then. Yeah. 
he had just this big wad of cash, and I've got like two stupid plastic trophies. And I just remember, I was just like, man, this is ridiculous. I, I need to start. And I, I called, <clears throat> I called Lynn and I said, look, dude, I've got to turn pro. And if you want to kick me off the team, that's fine. Because um, he had one, at one point had implied to me, if you turn pro, I'm not going to basically sponsor, you know, following up to the like DD story, you know. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, he said, you know what? He's like, go ahead, turn pro, you know. And at that point, I think he knew he was getting ready to sell the brand or, or forfeit the brand or whatever the deal with Seattle Bike Supply was. But um, so I, I turned pro and, you know, I mean, it, it goes pretty good. I turned double A, you know, inside of five or six you know, five or six weekends or something and get in there and get mixing it up. And, uh, you know, lo and behold, sure enough, the wheels fall off the wagon. Red line is sold to SBS. And at that point I'm just going, Oh man, here we go again. Right. Mm-hmm. But it turned out where with Mongoose, it was the worst case scenario for me. I think with Seattle bike supply, it ended up being the best case scenario, you know? So, and then there, there kind of, it kind of rolled from there, you know, again, dream, dream scenario riding for Seattle bike supply. I mean, Chuck Cooper was so good to me. We had the SoCal office down here that, that Steve Potts was in charge of. And, you know, I could just go down there and that's where I really, I met Big E, Big E and, and Seppi Mays were the, were like managing the warehouse inventory at this little SoCal, um, you know, Seattle bike supply warehouse. And like, I'd go down there to get, you know, riding for Seattle Bike Supply was great because, you know, when I rode for other companies, you had to get, you had to get your tires and your chains and, you know, your grips and all your different things from different sources. Seattle Bike Supply being the massive distributorship they were, they had everything you wanted. So it wasn't like I just rode for Redline anymore. I could only get Redline stuff. I could go down there and get anything that they carried that I wanted to use. So like I'd, Comp threes all day long, see this change all day long. And, you know, I'd go down there and take Biggie to lunch and we'd come back and get a grocery cart and go down the aisles. <laughs> awesome time. Yeah, stuff that doesn't happen now, you know. It's, uh, no, I mean, it was, yeah. just, it was such a, you know, such such a dream, such a dream scenario, you know, riding for for them at that time. You know, it was just awesome. They, um, you know, they basically, the frame development went in the can for a while. They just had nothing to do with it. So, I mean, it was just like, all right, no problem. I'll go and I'll get the free agent limo and put the red line decals on it. I mean, that's a great bike. I, I had ridden Brent's in my backyard a handful of times. Cause you know, again, he, they just lived, you know, like three miles down the road for me. So, I mean, I, you know, could go down there and, and get a bike when I needed it. And, I mean, it was just perfect. So then how was your first couple years of, um, on pro then? How did, how did, uh, well, I, you know, I think it was a little bit of a rude awakening for me. I, you know, was able to, I was able to win expert pretty easily. And, and you even, made terrible 10, right? That's probably one of the last things, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that was, that was kind of a neat deal because that was the second generation. I remember when the first generation came out and seeing all those guys in there, you know, it was like, man, you know, like I, I didn't know if they were ever going to do another one, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's not like they said, okay, the terrible 10 is happening every year now. Um, but I remember opening that magazine and, and seeing that, you know, Richie Anderson and, and Eddie King was in there and you just, you know, you saw these guys in there and you're just like, 
man, I would love to be held in that same regard. So yeah, that was that terrible 10 thing and making that was, was really big for me at the time. But, um, you know, turning pro was kind of a rude awakening, um, to the fact that <clears throat> you aren't going to be able to just ride at sheep hills and luckies and parks and do a few gate starts at orange and, and make it to the top. Like it was a very rude awakening for me. I was always a really small skinny kid. Um, you know, I, when I turned 17, I remember having to race Charles and Rick Palmer and guys that were like really big because, you know, 17 and over expert. I mean, those guys were already like two years older than me. And I was just such a scrawny little kid, man, that it just, you know, this was like turning 17 over X times 10, you know, when you had to get up. I mean, it's 87. You think about the size of, of, of athlete that you were racing against. I mean, Sean, Texas, you look at, you know, Greg Hill was, you know, was on the, on the training program that I think pistol Pete was on, you know, there was like 80, like 86, 87 was like the year of the beginning of the meathead training for double a. <laughs> so, I mean, it was like the worst time for me to turn pro probably from, you know, a stature standpoint. Right. But, um, so it was rough. I mean, I think just learning how to learning how to get out there and race and, you know, now, you know, you're back on a total point system for, you know, for qualifying and, and you got to kind of, you know, I went out there, typical rookie, you know, I'm going to just run into anybody for fourth place. <laughs> and, you know, that, that there's an etiquette, you know, there's an etiquette that you have to learn. And, you know, I've, on one hand, I was super excited that I was getting to race some childhood heroes, you know, that were still around Eddie King and Harry Larry and, and Greg Hill and Pistol Pete. I mean, these, these were, you know, guys that I totally looked up to, you know, especially like, especially Pete, you know, Pete was one of my, one of my big influences when I was a kid at Orange. He was, I started racing at 12. He was like 14 riding for Diamondback. I mean, he was like the example of what to do, you know? So mm -hmm. it was really surreal to, to race those guys at that, at, at that time. But, um, so there was, there was an intimidation factor I had to get over. But then there was also just a realization to like, you have to really train and really work hard. And, you know, I had just graduated high school and I had been going to, you know, uh, uh, Cypress College, taking a bunch of different classes and just kind of figuring out what I wanted to do. And I was like, I finally made the commitment after my rookie year. Um, rookie year, I don't think I won. I think I might have won one double race, double A race in my rookie year. But it wasn't a pro series race like they used to have just like kind of like they do now, you know, like in our era when we were racing, it was like every race was a pro race. But back then, like now they had specified pro series races, but you could still go to a national and you'd still have a double A class. It just didn't count. So it was a, the, the rookie win I got was a little bit less competition than what it would have normally been. But um I made the top 10 in points. I got number eight my first year in double A. I made the main at the grands. And that was kind of the turning point for me of like confidence. Like, hey, you can get out there and you can do it. I mean, granted, Charles Townsend was also a rookie that year and he was taking home the truck, you know. So like, mm -hmm. again, though, you know, he is, you know, Charles is a big, strong guy, man. And he he didn't have that 
that strength transition issue that that I think I had. Um, but <clears throat> you know, that was my rookie year was was pretty good, making the eighth grands, finishing eighth in points. Then eighty eight was where things started to really click, you know, so fortunately second year in things just started to click. And, you know, I mean, I <clears throat> had done pretty good in 88. I finished seventh in points, but I had won some big races and, um, you know, it was, it was middle of 88 that I actually switched to that free agent limo. And the second that I switched over to that frame, a lot of things started really clicking. It was, it was six months or eight months of a really, different training program for me that, that involved a lot of weight training and a lot of hill sprints and you know, all the things, you know, bleacher, running the bleachers, all the things that were kind of off, a lot of off bike, off track training that I had never really done that was starting to come into play, um, the, the switch of the bike. And that's where things really started to click was about the summer of 88. And I at one point went on a pretty good run, you know, like, I mean, I think I had, a couple of double A wins and a couple of doubles, you know, like pro open double A doubles that, that happened consecutively. And it was against all the, you know, you name it, they were there, you know. So. There was one article in uh, Plus, I think, you doubled, I think, at, uh, it was an NBL race in, North, in, um, in like Riverside or somewhere, and you was on Redline. Snipes. Yeah, Snipes, yeah, yeah. Snipes Park. So, yeah, that's one of the ones that I'm talking about. That was, um, Woodward was the weekend before which Woodward's race in 88 was the, that was the first race I had showed up with this free agent limo. And I got, <clears throat> I won pro open both days and I got second in double a both days or a pro for the NBL. Um, then came to Snipes <clears throat> the following weekend and I got second in both classes on Saturday and then Sunday was the big day, right? The pro series day. And I wound up doubling on Sunday. And that was, I mean, that was the first couple of weeks there. That was in, I think, June of, of 88. And that was like where all the confidence that I had lacked in whether or not I could make it as a pro, um, it all kind of happened from there. You know, finally... I broke through and had that like, man, the training's working. The I'm on the best bike I've ridden in probably the last four, you know, four years. And, uh, you know, it just, it just really clicked from there. So, I mean, in fact, I, I wound up being in the, in the conversation for the NBL title in 88. Oh, cool. What kind of money would yeah. you make in then like salary and stuff? What you kind of, uh, you know, you'd like 1200 bucks a month, 1500 bucks a month, somewhere around there. You know, it was, it wasn't like a whole lot as a, in the first couple of years, you know, the first, in fact, when I turned, when I turned pro my first year, I think that my Lynn was like, I'll, you can, you can stay on the team. Like I'll keep sponsoring you, but nothing is changing. And then um, 88 was when that transition happened to SBS. So I was basically on the standard, I was still on the same Lynn Caston deal. Mm -hmm. And then, so fortunately what was cool was that when 88 came to an end, I had finally had those breakthrough moments and, and won some big races and, and kind of proven 
what I could do. So then moving forward from there at the end of 88, it was time to really do my first deal with Seattle bike. And so then that, you know, was able to, you know, get, get handled from there. But yeah, the first couple of years, man, it was like, I, you know, I, I think I made more, I, I made more money in, in payout than I did, you know, in like salary per se. Mm-hmm. What was the big deal? That must have been, I remember 89, you won one of the mains at the Worlds in Australia. I think you won the last pro yeah. main. Um, yeah. I think Townsend ended up winning the overall. Um, and then was it 90 them, the trading places deal with you and Mike King? What, is that 90, 91? Um, yeah, so at the end of 90, at the end of 90, I was really, um, really good friends with Mike King. You know, we had raced each other from the time we were, you know, since he really came back. I mean, he's a little younger than me. So when we were an expert, we didn't have, we had like six months of, of time in the same class. Um, but at the end of, at the end of 88, when he won the pro title, that was when, pistol was you know i don't i don't know if the deal was you know pistol had a chance at the title mikey had a chance at the title the aba title in 88 and there was some talk that you know whichever one of them got the title was going to be the only guy riding for you know haro because they had been teammates you know for a couple years there and Mm -hmm. um so you know haro having the like two pro team kind of thing had been established you know, GT had multiple pros. It was the, like multiple pro, two two pros on your team was kind of a standard deal back then. And uh, anyway, at the end of 1990, um, again, perfectly happy where I was riding. No intention of leaving. Um, no interest in leaving. I get this call from Bob Haro about wanting to come ride for him. And initially my thought was, that, you know, after Mikey had spent 89 riding kind of on his own, I, I know his performance had dropped down quite a bit. And, um, I, I, the first, my first response was to Bob was, yeah, I, I would, I would love to, to talk to you about, about being teammates with Mikey. And he said, you know, I'm, I'm telling him all, you know, how good of friends me and Mikey are and how we've traveled to a bunch of races together, you know, the past year and stuff. And, you know, I hadn't talked to Mikey at all about his his racing plans. As far as I know, you know, as far as I'm assuming, Mike may have been putting my name in the hat as a as a new teammate, you know, mm-hmm. based on the fact that we had me, him and Rick Palmer used to tra- travel together all the time. I also traveled with DC a bunch back then, too, but all this kind of single single team pros, you know, we would, we would buddy up together and, and cut our travel expenses. You know, I think we are, all of us had these deals where we just got one lump sum and however much, however cheap we could travel, the rest we could keep. That's a Euro deal. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, um, so anyway, so, you know, and then Bob says to me, he goes, no, Mikey's leaving. And I was like, oh man, well, you know, like, uh, he didn't really, and he didn't get into any details or anything about that. He's just like, Mike, he's not riding for us anymore. And, you know, I don't really, you know, I don't really know what really came about between that deal. But um, I just was like, well, you know, I, I'm pretty happy where I'm at. And, you know, but I'll, 
you know, I've, it's Bob Haro. Bob had been really good to me throughout my career. You know, I mean, he had always given me plates. And, you know, when I rode for Mongoose, I wore his pants. Even for a brief time on Redline, I wore I wore Haro pants. And, um, you know, he, that was probably the, you know, the one exception to, like, not – like, I, it probably could have been any other team, and I probably wouldn't have been interested or even had the conversation, but again, because of a, the pre-existing relationship I had with Bob, and um, I, I thought, you know, I owe it to myself to at least come down there and, you know, have the conversation. And, um, and you know, it just wound up being, it just wound up being a conversation that, you know, kind of had me feeling like maybe a little change was going to be good. I mean, we had just started to build a team at Redline. You know, an amateur team in 1990, and we had won a couple of team trophies, and I was doing kind of the team manager thing, and you know, it was a little bit distracting for me. You know, it's not that I disliked it, but compared to how the previous couple of years at Redline had been, where I was just kind of the sole pro, um, I don't know. I kind of felt like that for '91 that that was kind of kind of what I, I might want to do again was kind of be just more on my own as far as the pro thing goes. And, you know, it turns out they ended up wanting to build a little bit of a team too. And, and they did do it. You know, we sponsored Terry Giannis and uh, got a couple other riders on the, on the team. Tony this D. Was before. Tony D, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Tony D was Tony D. I inherited Tony D from, from Mike King. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so 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 Tony's deal was like he was initially, you know, he was Mikey's buddy from down in San Diego, and that's kind of where his his little, you know, his deal with Haro kind of came about. And so, yeah, when Mikey left, I he was just kind of package deal. deal. Yeah, yeah, he just he came with it. He was in here, <laughs> but uh, love that guy. <laughs> just just love that guy. I remember he was. The first race we went to in Reno, I uh, we went to, I don't know, I think it was McDonald's or something for, you know, the typical, like, we're late for practice, fast food breakfast kind of thing. And I bought his breakfast for him, and he was all, he was like, oh, you're not, you're, you're not such a bad guy, are you? And I'm like, I bet you that, I bet that tightwad Mikey never bought you breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, so did you but, and Mikey have any like words or was any like you know? Uh, no, so so like I I you know I I felt compelled to want to call him and kind of ask him what was going on, but it was like I, I just I never really did. I never really said anything to him about it. Like I just figured that's their business between them and. You know, I didn't know. I had again. I had no idea if Mikey was leaving for greener pasture or if they had just run their course. Because you know, things do, man. Things run their course. Riding for teams sometimes, you know. I mean, you know this. You know what a mental head game it can be riding and racing, and and like you start searching for reasons that things might not be going the way that they're going. I mean, racing is very cyclical and with the schedule being from, from November, you know, from January to November, um, you know, we used to get run ragged. It's not like the guys now where they have much less important races on their schedule. Mm -hmm. You know, we used to have to go to like every single one and you get run ragged and you just, there's certain times of the year where you're going to peak and other times where you're going to, you know, where you're going to hit a valley and, mm -hmm. you know, racing's just cyclical, but you can't help, 
but start searching for for things and reasons and you know ways to to shake a a little bit of a slump or whatever and Mikey had had a pretty down year for him in 89 mm-hmm. and it's you know as far as I could tell or thought maybe he was just looking for maybe they were parting ways cuz he just wanted to do something different you know i mean to this day i never really have you know sat down and had the conversation with him about like how did you how did it turn out that you were leaving i mean it was by no means was it i'm replacing mikey you know mm-hmm. as far as the conversation was put to me i mean it was there was no like you're replacing him we're going to fire him so we can have you ride for us because the magazines made a big thing about it didn't they because i remember you know reading it and i I have it in my in my magazine collection the i think the article is called trading places yeah so so i i guess you know so as it turned out i mean mikey was parting ways with haro regardless of who haro's new pro was going to be they had come to that Mm -hmm. agreement already that they were going to go separate ways and so, you know, I take the deal because, um, again, like I said, I, you know, I was kind of in that same boat where, you know, I had been riding for for Redline since, you know, since 1985 at this point. So, you know, five full seasons. And, um, you know, I I kind of was <clears throat> maybe feeling like I was getting a little bit stale or that maybe things were not progressing like I had hoped they would be, be progressing. And it's not that they were bad, but where I saw the Redline brand going, I mean, we had, we had done a few like kind of kooky ads and the, the, the bikes were not really getting better as far as like their complete line of bikes. They had some really like 89, 88, 89, things were really not that good. And, you know, I didn't have much input on it because I really didn't care. I was riding free agents, you know, and I, I remember in 1990, I got my first updated sticker pack to put on my free agent since like I'd been using the same stickers since 1988 on them oh, wow. or like 1986 stickers. And, and, you know, that stuff didn't mean a lot to me, but like I, I had these like bigger questions, I think around that time about where's the red line brand going, you know, like what is the future here? And, and, you know, Haro, <clears throat> Haro had just started coming out with that that new Pro Series frame set that Kasten was building down in Mexico. And um, it was, you know, it seemed like to me that, I mean, I knew Bob had already, like, was in this transitional phase with having sold the company, but he was still kind of the driving guy um, behind the brand. You know, they had, they still had their own independent office down in Carlsbad, and they were it was still kind of being run, even though they were owned, you know, by, by a big distributor, it was still kind of running as though it was Haro. Now, what did you get was like, cause like in England in, you know, 87, 88, 89, 90, 91, everything was really down. And I, I just think from the magazines it seemed like there's a lot of that here as well. So did you get like some of that kind of pistol peak kind of money or it was already on the damn spiral then? during that period um no you know what because they were because they were wooing me away from from a team that i was perfectly happy with yeah i think i had some leverage still at that point but i think that that was probably one of the one of the last good deals Mm -hmm. you know i think that was one of those last salad day deals that that were going on back then you know i was getting a piece of the frame sales and stuff like that that you know that stuff pretty much went away um but 
you know, I, you know, I think for me again, making that, making that change was just, you know, Haro seemed like a brand that was still moving forward or had a, maybe a better direction about them. And again, I mean, I always had been a fan of that brand and, that gear and, that year uh, you rode for him, I mean, the gear was always good. Horror gear. Yeah. I always like horror gear, but yeah. the, when you was on it, that, I, I just found a picture yesterday. I was looking for some pictures for this and uh, found a picture in Indian X action, man. So clean, man. Just the black. Yeah, that you was, know? And, and, yeah, and that was my first year with, um, I, custom, custom Cully, Dave Cullinan <laughs> had introduced me to Troy Lee, um, <laughs> at the, in the very beginning of 91. I went down there with him and uh, we were going down there to have lunch and uh, I'll never forget that because as we, as we're getting ready to go to lunch, you know, we take off and we're like, yeah. Um, he's like, yeah, we're going to meet a couple people, a uh, couple other people over here. And uh, you know, Troy was saying that we got a couple other guys to, to meet when we get down there. We're going to this, like uh, we're going to Miguel's, which if you're, you're, You've spent your time in like Marietta, Corona. Like you got to know what Miguel's. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. So this was the original Miguel's. All right. And it was like a little like hole in the wall. Miguel's was. Uh-huh. It wasn't. It wasn't the big fancy one that's that's like an El Torito up there now. And we were going to Miguel's, which was like the the place. And we get there, and Troy's two buddies that were coming to meet us. Were Jeff Ward and Paul Tracy. Oh wow, Paul Tracy. I was like, yeah. I was, I was like, what the hell? Like, like salad lunch. Um, yeah, no kidding, man. I was <laughs> like, I ate a lot on this deal, but, but yeah, I mean, so that's just a funny story. I mean, that was so that was the beginning of you know Troy Lee custom paint job helmet for me. So Haro was like, you know, Haro was like a really neat neat deal as far as the uniform was super cool. I had the two colored, you know, I had a blue one for one day and a. You know, the black it. one for the other day. Yes, and, it's a black one. I got a picture of it. Yeah, it looks sweet. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and, you know, it was, as far as I was concerned, like the fluoro was done. And on that one, though, having the, you know, even though it had the, the, that fluoro pink and, and yellow on the sleeve, mm-hmm. look good. it was still all black, you know, yeah, it was yeah. all black. And, I, and, you know, I think to this day, you know, to this day, when I'm doing my uniform stuff now, I'm like, yeah, uh, it's just kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. You still like it? I can tell. Yeah, I I, I still try to do that. That mm-hmm. you know, I still have two. Yeah, do the black and have have two uniforms. You know, last this is I'm coming up on my on my you know third season now with having I'm gonna have two uniforms next year. You know, I'm gonna have an all white one and then an all black one again. So yeah, it's that's kind of a throwback to those horror days. Yeah, that, that's you know that was just talking. I was talking to Jamie Stack yesterday, we're just working on uniforms for our junior team next year. And that's one of the things we were talking about some of the good stuff, you know, from years past. And we're like, yeah. man, we should just do a, you know, red one day and blue the next day, you know, just kind of stuff that yeah. yeah, you guys used to do quite a bit of, you know? So, yeah. Uniforms used to be so much better. You know, you hear that a lot. You'll read that a lot on social media and stuff. And it's mostly old guys, you know, the old school guys that are saying it because we, you know, we all like what we liked in our, prime years of being in anything, you know, so, mm-hmm. you know, but when I look at, when I look at the uniforms that I was able to do over the past four years, which, you know, I have a really talented artist at Razor that's done them for me, but, you know, we do them together because I like have that, that 
influence and input of the years of the sport that you know that are by you know gone you've always you know, been into gone, the, the creative create can't say it, creativity of it yeah exactly exactly so you know we've been able to really you know like i think we've been able to really hit on doing some good uniforms that that have a little bit of that old school flavor to them you know i mean we're just doing now you know we talked about the chase sponsorship stuff and um what what part of that deal is that you know with sponsoring that team is is that it it pulls me into their group of of sponsorship that they have there. So mm-hmm. it just simplifies a lot of things for me. And, um, you know, it, it makes it easier for us to allocate funds to their race program when, you know, when there is a reciprocal thing more so than just, you know, frames and parts. They're actually, you know, I'm essentially on their team, but I'm maintaining a, uh, and this is kind of the, I haven't really broke about much about how this affected my race program, but but we're going to be having a, a a specific razor identity for me, mm-hmm. but it's essentially the same uniform that uh, in a different color with some logos switched around that that Joris and Connor and, and Romain wear. So it's like all kind of the same artwork and stuff. So yeah, you know, cool. for me it's yeah, so it's it looks pretty cool because it really. It pulls me in, but when I'm looking at the artwork for all this stuff, as we're getting ready to do again, because there's a few changes with logo placement and stuff, and you know, with Razor, we've got some some corporate logo, um, you know, protocols that we're mindful of. So, you know, as I'm approving and looking through all this these uniforms, I'm or jersey designs, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm looking at it and I'm like, this is a lot different than what what I've designed with my guy independent. Like this is totally a new school uniform. The way all the logos are all kind of like smashed together, like really big on the front. It sort of creates this, like instead of things being more individual, like they were in the eighties and nineties, you just see everything as one graphic. Mm-hmm. You know, that's really, and, and that's one of the things that I think I hear a lot about people saying that, you know, like, you know, just, they're so busy, the uniforms are now, that they kind of take away, they lose a little bit of that identity that the old uniforms had and, you know, out of simplicity, you know, that created that look. But, mm-hmm. you know, hey, everything, everything, everything evolves. And it's, you know. For you must part, see a lot of the stuff now, though, Billy, especially the technology and stuff. Do you kind of like, just like kind of roll your eyes at some of the stuff now you see? Or do you, do you, do you uh, dig some of the stuff? Are you kind of disgusted <laughs> in a lot of the stuff? <laughs> um, I, you know, so when I started riding again and decided that I'm going to ride for real and it's going to be serious, one of the hardest things for me to do was adapt to the feel of these tires that don't have any knobs on them mm-hmm. and have like, you know, you got to run like 90 pounds or a hundred pounds of pressure in them. Mm-hmm. That is such a different feel when you go into a corner from what the old tire used to be, you know, like, the old comp three, you had the knob flex. You go around a corner and you feel the rear end kind of like you kind of feel the thing hook and like there's just this feel that's so different now. It's just so dead. It reminds me kind of of like being on a really really super stiff frame. Yeah, road bike. Yeah, exactly. It's just so, Saturday's group ride going around the turn. Yeah, it's just <laughs> such a rigid feel, you know. And 
And it's appropriate for what the tracks have evolved to. Um, but I'm still not really used to that. I'm still, I still go into the corners and I go, man, there's like, I could be anywhere in this corner. My line choice is really not near as critical as it used to be because there's going to be grip and speed, you know, anywhere. If you compare it to NASCAR, it's like now we race on tracks like Talladega versus like a short track at Martinsville or Richmond or something where, you know, you were, your lines in the corner were so sort of limited. You had to pick them really wisely. And now you just have a massive freeway of a corner where you can just, you know, I, I, I'm still like have to remind myself how much farther into the corner I can paddle. Yeah, you can, you, get lo- you can get lost in them things these days. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's really wild. But what um, about what about the the look of the you know the like say that we spoke about uniforms and the you know um, yeah just just the look. I mean, what do you uh, you know the national yeah, shirts think, and stuff. I mean, it's so different to yeah to all the yeah. stuff we've just been talking about. You know. Right. No, I think that um, I think one of the things that I really like is that, you know, USA BMX has done a really good job with like soft goods and stuff. So like um, if you're a if you're a BMX racer and that's your sport and you're in high school, you know, you don't have a letterman jacket or, you, you know, you don't have your your high school football shirt to wear or whatever, like, you know, USA BMX has done a really good job of, of having soft good items that, that kids can kids can wear and go to a school and be like, yeah, I'm a BMX racer. Like I'm not a jock, you know, football player or wrestler or water polo or whatever your high school sport is. You know, they they can still represent their sport. Um, and I and I think that's really cool. I mean, you know, when I look at when I look at the the sport as far as the overall image of the sport, you know, when you say bicycle motocross and you see tracks that are mostly all asphalt and tires that don't have knobbies on them and stuff, you know, I think that there's, you know, I, I don't blame anybody for saying that the motocross is out of BMX because it doesn't look like motocross anymore. You know, you look at those old shots from Joe Kidd on a Stingray or, or from Stu's documentary, you know, all that stuff at Saddleback and Corona. And these guys are just flying out of control. Bikes, you know, are sliding around corners. Um, you know, that's, that's definitely more mo- motocross than what it is now. But, you know, the sport, I don't think would have the, the worldwide attention that it has if it hadn't evolved to this point. So, you know, even though it doesn't look as much like motocross anymore, I think it's still, you know, it's still a a good thing for the sport to, to have tracks that, that are big, that are challenging, that are exciting to look at. And that's not to say that a downhill track isn't exciting to look at, but it's, it doesn't look as organized and as professional, you know, it just looks, when you look at those old videos, it just looks like uh, it looks like what it was, which was very loosely organized guys racing down a natural terrain. I mean, it looks looked more like mountain bike racing back then than it, you know. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm not. I don't have any problem with 
with how the sport looks today. You know, I, I, I enjoy being involved in the sport today. And, and, you know, there's nothing, I mean, I love racing and regardless of what the bike is, regardless of what the track is, what pedals you have to use, you know, how cluttered or, or clean your uniform might be. When you get on the gate, that adrenaline rush, that challenge of being your best the moment the gate drops, that is still the same. And that's what I'm that's what I'm here for. You know, I'm here for that challenge and that excitement and that adrenaline rush. And um, regardless of, of any of the, the changes, that is still the same. Mm-hmm. Well, I did want to, you know, we've got loads of questions on Facebook. Maybe that's something we can do in a part two. But I had a question. When I came, um, I came in, um, I came a little bit early 90s. And then I kind of started coming a little bit regular to the U.S., California, 93, 94. Now, that's when you was, I think you'd done a little bit of stinked on Iron Horse. I think maybe when the sport yep. was really down or sponsorship was down. But you yep. was back on Hara when, like, you was, I think, winning pro points or you was up there. I actually turned double A during that period where you was just killing it. Um, I actually won my first double A race down to you blowing it. I think it was uh not Fresno, but some race in Northern California, um, in an arena they made. Um Yeah. I forgot what it's called. No, I, I remember it I remember it well. Yeah, you I, had I one one well. one one and then I, you hit the gate or something. Yeah. So I actually ended up me and Matt Hayden, uh, he was in there as well. I think I got two three three and ended up just winning over you and yep. Hayden down to you blowing it. But you was going through a really you know, you was on it. You was uh, on the title hunt. I think at least at the the first start of the year. Um, so tell us a little bit about you know that those uh, yeah, that time, yeah the second coming on the monocoque horror yeah, time. So, right. So at the end of ninety two, at the end of ninety two, which was the end of my initial two year contract with with Haro, um, there was you know ninety two the the business started changing quite a bit. And, you know, it's become a common theme. You know, I get, I get somewhere, I get happy. And then, you know, the, the business model changes, you know, I mean, it's like it happened on like three teams that I rode for. Right. And then, you know, it happened at GT when I was working there, you know, the company, you know, it's like, this was just this, this common theme at the end of 92, they, uh, you know, I still had a ride. But what was happening was there was a significant cutback happening. And, you know, I don't I just remember that it was going to be like a significant hit to continue riding for them. And I felt like I needed to go and maybe look elsewhere. And part of that was that almost I didn't even I almost didn't care what happened. You know, like I almost didn't care if I was going to keep racing or not keep racing. Again, you get to this point and, you know, you've been here because you had to at one point retire from racing. Mm-hmm. You get to a point where you you start looking at your career and you think, you know, how many more years am I going to do this? And not just from a competitive standpoint, but from a how it might be affecting what you do next. Like I always looked at it like, you know, I'm sacrificing a lot to be racing. As much as racing is a dream job, you know you're not going to do it forever. 
you're not making race car or motocross money, you know, like race car drivers. You have a couple of, you know, mid-pack years in NASCAR and you might make enough money that you don't have to do anything. You know, I know a lot of motocross guys did made a lot of money and, and don't have to do anything. And, you know, it, BMX is not that, you know, it, it wasn't that then. And it's unfortunately, it's not that now. And um, anyway, I, I think that you get to this point where you're measuring, you're measuring more years, you're adding up more years behind you than you have in front of you. So, you know, even though I, I kept going through 95, I think in, you know, at the end of 92, I was starting to, and I'll actually tell you, 91 was when I bought my house. And I think that that realization, when you sign that 30-year mortgage, you know you're not going to race BMX bikes for 30, 30 years. And you start to go thinking to yourself, gee, what am I going to be doing in not just in 30 years, but in 10 years, eight years? seven years i don't know you know you start having those thoughts and so at the end of and the end of 92 when when the change at Haro was coming i don't even really particularly know but what it, what it was but it was just a significant cutback and again it's probably got to do with how the industry was at the point at that point but there was there was a ride for me but not a very good one and i didn't feel like regressing was worth for just the sake of racing, just to keep racing was worth um, giving up on what on getting a start on what I might do down the road. Well, so during that time, there were a few people starting to bite on the mountain bike thing. And I was thinking to myself, well, that's something I should give a, a, a shot to because we saw we saw John Tomac first and then we saw Custom Cully second the bmx guys that came in and became rock stars in mountain biking obviously then you know king and lopes and you know even uh Tanette for a little bit there was was doing pretty good and, and i'm like you know i should give that a run and so um there was an opportunity for me to get very little support um from iron horse but nonetheless they were a prominent brand and prominent team in mountain biking, I thought that this is, you know, Cully had ridden for them. So, you know, this is probably the best opportunity I'm going to have, even though it's not really a great one. It's still some way for me to go test the waters with mountain biking. And, you know, I think the first thing I learned in 93 racing mountain bikes was that, and, and by the way, I had also done what Cully had done, which was still pick a handful of BMX races to go to. Um, in between the mountain bike stuff and and do that with Iron Horse as well. So it, it was kind of one of these things where it's like, I don't really know what I want to do. And rather than go backwards in my financial situation with Haro, if I'm going to be if I'm going to be broke and spending my own money, I'll do it doing a different sort of a different thing you know I'll, I'll do i'll do it trying something different and so i realized pretty quick though that mountain biking was kind of like at the at the time the sport was still really i don't know it was still really to me i just didn't feel like i fit in very well like there was just too much 
spandex and shaved legs and bar ends and long stems and, and people not willing to, to listen to how to ride a bike because it was so road bike influenced still. And nobody, there were a couple of people that knew a little bit about suspension, but you know, how suspension should apply to a bike, they didn't really know about. And it was just, it just seemed like it was such a weird time that I just didn't fit in. And you're not having like the full killer factory ride. Like I didn't realize that, you know, you would take, you might go through seven or eight rear derailleurs just in practice because these things are not designed for what they're doing. And, you know, derailleurs are 60 bucks, you know, and, you know, you mean I blew up how many derailleurs in practice and I, you know, not, I don't have the Shimano sponsorship where they're just box loads of them on the truck and they're giving them to me, you know? So like, it just didn't make a lot of sense to, to keep trying to do that. Um, I, so I started focusing at the end of, at the end of 93, I started kind of looking back at focusing on BMX and did a couple of races consecutively, like starting in the summertime, I went to a few and I won, I won one up in Oregon against all the, you know, all the main comp. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, that was the longest kind of break I'd had in BMX. And it was like five or six months or whatever. And I'd been training totally differently, trying to do the mountain bike thing. And I remember coming back and going like, all right, cool. I can still do this. Cause I missed it. You know, I missed it. Mountain biking was so lame that I was like, man, I'd love to just go back and race BMX. And so I go back at the end of the year, 93, have a few good weekends. And I'm like, yeah, cool. I'm going to, I'm going to finish out this year and then see what comes up for next year. And lo and behold, I get this call from Haro and they had, you know, been sold new ownership was coming in they were going to rebuild and it was like yeah we're getting the band back together so I went back to ride for them and it wasn't you know it wasn't a great deal to go back and ride for them because it was a different situation in the market within the company but it was still better than it was still better than that deal that they had offered to keep me around at the end of 92 so here we are a year later and and you know, it's like, yeah, this makes sense. I missed racing when I didn't race this year. I'm going to come back and I'm going to give 94 like the full attention, the full like it was almost this like I have one more opportunity kind of feeling. Right. Like I, and that motivated me more than I had been motivated in a couple of years, I think. And, uh, you know, that's what led to really you know, having, having a really good year and, and being up for the title, of course, um, you know, I showed up at the grands and, and was feeling great, was going really fast and, uh, ultimately got knocked out in the semi, um, thanks to, uh, I think a, a slipped pedal by Terry Tanette right before a big double out of the first turn. And, uh, I jumped it, he slipped a pedal, didn't jump it. And I landed and I landed, kind of cross wheeled on him with my front wheel, my bike and my body were pretty much on the right side of him, but my front wheel was on the left side of his back wheel. And I just pretty much, you know, ate shit over the, 
the the back of his bike and you know it was just one of those moments where you know just like things you know that's just racing you know you know i didn't get taken out i didn't get run into i didn't you know it was just you know what he just he didn't hit the double you know he didn't go he stopped right in front of me with the slipped pedal and i landed on him and it was just that's just the way it goes you know so but um so you know that year though i remember i think it was it was like mid cal if it was fresno or somewhere but i remember you went in the race and i and i was pretty sure i knew that was your first double a win and i you know mm-hmm. to be perfectly honest with you i don't really remember i don't really remember exactly what the details had i i know i won the pro open and i probably was low points but i don't think i messed up i think i think that I think that I just got beat, if I remember right. Yeah, something happened. You got a six for something anyway. I think you went like one one six, and yeah, I think okay. my, myself and Hayden was like, um, I I passed Hayden down the last straight for second or third in that last main, and that was enough okay. to to give me the winner. If I hadn't passed Hayden, I think I'd have got third. So it was just kind of okay. Yeah, was right. I know it was. Like, I know it was pretty close, but I remember. Yeah. I remember finding you after the race. I came and congratulated you after the mm-hmm. race because I was really stoked for you. I was pissed that I lost, you know, anytime, right. anytime you lose a race, when you go into the third main low points oh, and you yeah. don't come out with a win, that's your cut more than, mm-hmm. you know, anything. So, but no, I remember being super stoked for you. I yeah, remember that, really, that was a really rad, yeah. rad thing to see. Yeah, no, I was super you know? stoked. I was only here for a, a three or four month stay. I think it was the last race of my, uh, little winter break and then i was heading back home for for euro season uh but yeah no, it was uh, it was cool yeah yeah and i was saying it was just all four long straights and uh yeah i just remember i think previously phoenix you might have won there or you was riding good and yeah you was on a you was on yep. a streak at the moment so that was yeah good. i had had a, a few good ones again it was just that it was just that re-energized sort of refocused being back on on haro we had that um we had that new uh, monocoque yeah. aluminum frame and even though even though i had that that stupid pro fork on there <laughs> um that bike that bike rode really really good and um the weight advantage i'd kind of experienced this a little bit the year before with that aluminum iron horse that was my first aluminum race bike and to be on an aluminum race bike in 93 and you know all of 94 that was still an advantage, you know, like the bike was, you know, a pound lighter than any of my competitions bikes. So like there was, there was a significant, you know, gain for, for that. You know, I think Lopes had a, had a Hawk. And I think when he got on that bike, that just that much lighter frame really was paying a big, yeah, we big was, dividend. We, to was guys. Still, we were still on Chrome Olives, the rest of us yep. were. So yep. I think it was uh, yep. yeah, another year till the box, uh, box series came in for us. Billy, I think this is what we should do. We'll, we'll wrap this one up now. I'm, I'm, like I've done with a few other people, I st- I'll, I'll make notes what we haven't talked about because yep. uh, I really want to get into it. Uh, we've got loads of Facebook questions. So I didn't want to just blow them off so, uh, or not, not answer those. So I definitely want to go back and do that. But I want to talk a lot more maybe next time we do it on the, um, the Orange County scene and you know the magazines and just, oh, I mean, you're just part of such of the core history of, of what we saw when we, we read about you guys and, and then got to, you know, got to come here and experience and then hang out and, and ride with you guys and race with you guys. So I definitely want to get into to more of that. But we've been going two hours now, so I think it's a good time to, okay. to, 
to click. And obviously, our, you know, you, you know, Lane Eight, your band, and uh, all, all <laughs> uh, you know, what a, all, there's so much more stuff with you, Billy. You got, I mean, you yeah, can just right. look at some of your old pictures you post. I mean, there's so much I have questions of so much stuff just within that stuff, you know. So um, yeah, right. So let's no, do I, that. Let's, uh, okay, it sounds good. Yeah, no, there was. Uh, I was. I was pretty interested in some of those Facebook questions too when I was reading through them. There were a couple that were, you know, and and you know, how cool is this that, you know, I think when as I'm as I'm reading through the the Facebook questions, I think one of the questions was something about like who was one of your biggest influences when you were coming up, right? And then right. you know, and then a handful of questions later, one of my largest influences is Stu. is. Is there, yeah. is there, you know, with, with his own questions to pose. I mean, I was like, oh, mm-hmm. man, this is ridiculous. So, yeah, let's definitely uh, let's definitely pick this up again. And um, Yeah, for sure. This is these ones I really, really enjoy. You know, I, you guys are the guys I looked up to, you know. So it's uh, always yeah. a great conversation. I know the Eric Carter one's always been one of the biggest ones. And we just did our second one. And, yeah, people love that, uh, yeah, late 80s, uh, 90s era. I think at least people of our age do. So, um, yep. I want to continue with that. Billy, let's sign off. Anything you want to say? Okay. Any shout outs or anything? Um, well, for sure. want to wish everybody good luck in Tulsa this weekend. And, um, you know, again, I just, you know, I always want to encourage people as it's getting close to the holiday season. When you're out looking for gifts, please check out your, your razor um, options. We got a lot of really good fun stuff. Christmas is, uh, it's a great time for us. It's one of my favorite times of the year for being a toy designer and, you know, being out and about on Christmas morning, wherever it is that I'm going and uh, seeing kids on their new Razor stuff. So just a little, you know, friendly reminder and nudge that when you're doing your holiday shopping, uh, you know, hopefully uh, you'll check out Razor and, and all our fun stuff we've got. Cool, cool, cool. And uh, as for me, you know, guys, I'm not sure which uh, way you listen to this podcast, but you can uh, listen to it on uh, iTunes. Uh, look up uh, the Hilo BMX podcast. Uh, I do post it on my, my website, darehomes.com, but I'm trying to put most of the stuff now on uh, bmxweekly.com. So uh, the majority of the podcast stuff will go up there first with links to uh, other ways. You know, I get messages from different people. I don't listen to iTunes. How can I listen to it? But the good old old fashioned way you can always go to uh, darehomes.com. It's always up there where you can just kind of hit the go and uh, listen to it that way as well. Uh, Billy, thanks. Great talking. Look forward to doing a part two. And uh, yeah, good luck to everybody at the Grands. And we'll see everybody on the next podcast. Cheers. Right on. Cheers. Thank you.